It was a courtroom in Riverside County, full of people. Some were dressed in a business suit with a tie, business attire. Some were dressed in what my mother would call scraggedy clothes. Some were clean, some not, some educated, some not, rich, poor. All ethnicities were represented there in the courtroom. I could smell designer perfume. Also, though, cigarettes and marijuana, coffee, hand sanitizer, lotions, just a, a variety of scents, probably representing the variety of society there in the Riverside County courtroom. Forty people, what they had in common, they were all guilty. Everyone in the room would go through the same process, standing up, presenting their case, entering their plea, and being heard by the judge. The first name to be called, however, was a 10-year-old boy. And I thought, now this, there's something's not right about this. There are 39 other people in the room guilty, but they're adults and young adults and teenagers capable of driving. Why would you make this 10-year-old boy go first? It doesn't seem right, does it? Let him watch the adults. Let him see the temperament of the judge. Let him learn what to say, what not to say. No, they called his name Andrew. He stepped forward. He stood up tall, about 10 feet from the bench where the judge sat draped in a black gown, and he handed his paperwork to the bailiff and put his shoulders back. The judge looked at the paperwork, and he said, Andrew. Yes, sir. Andrew, so what's the story, man, young man? Did you do what this says? Are you ready to enter a plea? Yes, sir. Andrew, do you own a bicycle helmet? Yes, sir. Do you usually wear a bicycle helmet? Yes, sir. Do you think it is ridiculous for your parents to ask you to cover your head with a bicycle helmet when you ride around the neighborhood? No, sir. Andrew, yes, sir. Can you tell me why you were not wearing a bicycle helmet then on this day? Now, Andrew sighs. Well, I think it looks silly. That's what he said. I don't like the way my hair pokes out of the side of my bicycle helmet when I'm riding around the neighborhood. I look silly. I don't like the way that looks. So, well, that's why I don't wear it. Now, the judge sighs. Andrew, yes, sir. Do you still think it's silly today? No, sir. Andrew got an assignment to write a term paper, two pages long, to be delivered to the judge in one month. The Consequences of Riding a Bicycle Without a Bicycle Helmet by Andrew. It's a courtroom. Everybody in the room is guilty. Everyone in the same predicament. We're going to open Scripture this morning with Micah chapter 6. It's another courtroom scene. Everyone in this courtroom is also guilty. Everyone here also in the same predicament. Different group of people, but the offenses are known by Micah and by God. Micah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, and this is the voice of the prophet speaking. 
Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. It's legal language. If you read the King James Version, it might read, Arise, contend, the Lord has a controversy. He will plead his case. It's a courtroom scene. God is the prosecutor. Israel, the nation of Israel, are the defendants. They're on trial. And you notice what the text says? The hills and the mountains, even the foundations of the earth, are called to be the jury. The consequences of whatever Israel has done reach down into the foundations of the earth. Cosmic consequences. The hills and the mountains are called to testify. It's a divine lawsuit in Micah chapter 6. I know we usually skip forward verses 6, 7, and 8. Usually from Micah, we quote Micah 6, 8 and Micah 5, 2, the messianic prophecy of a root springing forth from this little tiny area of the kingdom. But it's a divine lawsuit that precedes our favorite verse from Micah. If we took time to read this morning, and we won't, but I invite you to go home this afternoon, read the first three chapters of Micah, and all the offenses of Israel are listed there. They're specific, they're poetic, and we don't even catch all of that since it doesn't translate nicely into English. The beautiful, beautiful Hebrew poetry Micah writes with. But here are some of the offenses of Jerusalem. Remember last week, Amos, when we began the conversation with the prophets, Amos's voice was going up to the northern part of the territory. Now, 20 years or so later, Micah's voice going to the southern part of the territory. The northern kingdom's already probably been destroyed. His voice goes down south and he says to Jerusalem, here are some of your offenses. You devise wickedness and evil just because you have the power to do it. You confiscate homes and land. You, corrupt business, you have corrupt business practices. You cook your own people. You skin them and you cook them in a stew of injustice. You build Zion or Jerusalem with blood and your disease is incurable. The prophets cry peace when they have plenty to eat, but they cry poor when they're when they call, cry war when they're hungry. The priests, they'll teach for a price. The prophets, the prophets will also give a prediction for a bribe. The disease of Jerusalem, says Micah, is incurable. Now that's their list of offenses leading up to Micah chapter 6. And Micah is the first of all the prophets to predict the total destruction of Jerusalem. He says it in chapter 1. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 9. We'll read just verse 9 and 12 so you catch a flavor. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. This is what the divine trial is about. Jerusalem is to be plowed over because of the offenses of who? Not a neighboring community, not Assyria, not Syria, because of the offenses of the people of God. So they're called to this trial. Verse 3, now we hear the voice of God. God steps forward and says to his people, My people, what have I done to you? 
How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and I redeemed you from the land of slavery and I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam, capable leaders I put in your midst. I made sure you were out of bondage. You had a free place, a land, a name, your own possessions. What more could I have done? God, the prosecutor, says. Micah 6, verse 5 now. My people, still God talking. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Boer, answered, and remember your journey from Abel Shatim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, you just mentioned Balak, the king of Moab, and the people know, yeah, this, this is the pagan king who called the prophet Balaam, so Balaam would put a curse on the Israelites, and God saved us from that. Just the mention of Balak. And you might think this is a passage rehearsing and remembering the righteous acts of God. And it could be the case. These two cities are on either side of the Jordan River, one just before the children cross over, and the other city just after they've arrived in the promised land. So maybe God is saying, remember that I've been with you. Maybe. It's maybe. It's a prophecy to remind the people of the goodness of God. It also could be shorthand for failures of humans because in both of these cities, in both of these locations, condemnation also happened. Failure also happened. Judgment was also passed out. Abel Shittim, the last campsite before they cross over to the Jordan, it's on this spot that Moses gives his farewell speech. What happens to Moses? Doesn't get to go into the promised land, does he? It's on this spot before they cross over that um, offenses were made, worshiping the idols of the Midianites and the Moabites when the children of Israel mingled with these women. Not just the mingling, they took their gods for their own. And curses and punishments were handed out in the city. So when we name the city, we could be remembering the mighty acts of God. We could be remembering the failures of humans. Cross over the Jordan. On the other side... On this site is where Saul was sloppy with his sacrifices. And two times, the second time, he didn't follow the instructions to the point where Samuel had to come to him and say, you've lost your rights to the throne. So in, in this city also could be God's mighty acts. It could be the failure of humans. What is Yahweh, God, asking them to remember? God's faithfulness or their failures. If you add these to the previous offenses for the nation that were already recited, the first three chapters, the list is getting very long. Now move then to verse 6. It's a representative of the community that's on trial. God stands back and someone from the community steps forward on behalf of the community and then says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Is that what I'm to bring? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn, which, by the way, they did burn their children for the God. Shall I offer my firstborn born for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of 
my soul? What will make this God happy? How do I get back into good graces with this God? Will I ever have divine favor again? The representative from the community is asking. Or is it true the damage is irreparable? This disease will last forever, as the prophet has already said. It is no wonder in the book of Micah, and if you were here last week, you know what happened to Amos, who was run out of town. Finally, the people stand up to Micah and say, stop preaching. Stop. We don't want to hear any more. No more prophesying, no more preaching. The same word interchangeable there. Enough out of you, Micah, if all you're going to do is stand and tell us of our offenses, stop preaching. And someone here at some point in your life has felt like saying that to some preacher, some other place. Stop preaching. Because we don't like what this feels like, because our defenses kick in, because we get protective and we, we don't like the position it puts us in when we hear a list of our offenses and when we're called to stand before the authority. You know what it's like when you see the lights in your rear view mirror when you're driving. You don't like that feeling, do you? You know what it's like to be called into the principal's office. Have you had that happen to you? In your younger years, maybe? Some of you more than others called to the principal's office. For some of you, a regular occasion going to the principal's office. First time I was called to the principal's office, I was 35 years old and I was the chaplain of the school. But when I heard my name on the loudspeaker, Pastor Oberg, come to the principal's office, I was terrified like as if I was 10 myself. What have I done? Stop preaching. The envelope comes home with the grade report, and you know what your parents are going to see when they get home. You don't like that feeling that comes up inside of you. Stop preaching. Don't list our offenses. We want to run and cover for hide. Run and cover. Hide. We don't like this. It's a list of offenses for the nation of Israel. One critique of contemporary Christianity is that we don't talk about sin anymore. We don't like that S word. And so we say things like, well, we've disappointed God, or we've, we've not given attention to our relationship, or we've fallen short, or, or we've, we've failed. But the sin word, one critique says, we, we, we don't like the word sin, and we don't like to just stand up and say, we sin. We don't like to stand before God and confess what all of our offenses might be. That is one critique of contemporary Christianity. And that critique continues to say, in fact, you Christians would rather just run and hide in the bosom of God. You'd rather run and hide in the, the grace of Christ. Let Christ cover every blemish. It's just easy for you. You don't have to talk about your sin. You can just say, Christ covers it all. And that conversation seems to be becoming more and more polarized even within Adventist Christianity. So there are the people who care about the law and care about obeying and aren't afraid to call sin by its rightful name. I remember once when I was giving Bible studies to a group of students and they wanted to refer to the sinful people as the wicked ones. And I said, well, let's just call them the people who don't choose God. They're wicked. But let's just call them something nicer. 
the mother came to me the following Sabbath and said, the Bible says call the wicked by their right name. Why aren't you letting my daughter call the wicked the wicked? There is a group. Take the law seriously, sin seriously, wickedness seriously. And then there are others who are accused of not caring about the law because we care about a grace orientation and because we know, we know that grace and a grace orientation also includes that. But have you heard this polarized conversation in your Adventist communities? And have you felt how much more polarized it's become recently? It's a total misunderstanding, and Micah will help us this morning, for when God dispenses justice, when God dispenses judgment, when God asks us to stand up and name our offenses, that is grace. The grace of God is wrapped in all of that. When God dispenses judgment, it is good news. We shouldn't be afraid of that. It's a misunderstanding to think some people think about grace while some people want to care about the law because you can do both at the same time. Micah says, here's how you do both at the same time. When you stand before God with an awareness of your sin, you must also have an awareness that God is not neutral on this topic. That God is involved in this predicament with us. When I have a sin problem, God has a sin problem, is what Micah says. Did you hear it in that language? My people, my people, what have I done? Or what haven't I done? How have we gotten into this together? Did you hear that language? When we stand up and acknowledge our sin situation and the predicament we're in, we also acknowledge God is in this predicament with us. Micah teaches us this. Micah also says when we have an awareness of our sin, we must also have an awareness that God's anger does not mean God abandons. And from the emails and the phone conversations I've had since just last week, I can tell we're in for an interesting few weeks together. People trying to make sense of the wrath of God in the prophetic literature here. So we see passion and we see turmoil and we see in the prophetic voice the anger of God. Yes, of course we do because God is embedded in our predicament with us, but God does not abandon in this anger. And if you haven't had someone be angry at you and stay, then this is hard to understand. Micah, for example, said Jerusalem would be destroyed. Jerusalem was not destroyed in Micah's lifetime. Jerusalem was not destroyed in the lifetime of Micah's king or the king that came next. Jerusalem was not destroyed for a hundred years. That means we have a God who's not even bound by the prophecies of his prophets. Did you catch that? That we have a God who not only stays, but that will give people a chance and another chance, and another chance. The same thing happened with Jonah. The same thing with Micah and Jerusalem. Are these failed prophecies? Are they? It is said that the greatest achievement of a prophet is not the fulfillment of his or her prediction. It is that the people choose to repent. 
So Jerusalem did not fall till far after Micah's time, but King Hezekiah did repent. And Jerusalem is spared. Micah ultimately then tells us God's anger can be endured because it is wrapped in God's compassion and God is totally involved in our situation with us. And you can understand it if you've ever loved someone and, and you've been so frustrated at their bad choices and their poor behavior that, that you've been able to say, what are you thinking? And I love you. What are you thinking? I at the same time, do you know what that feels like? That's the wrath of God. Wrapped in compassion, the kind of love that doesn't abandon, the kind of love that has to stay. Micah says, don't be afraid then to be accountable. Don't be afraid to stand before this kind of a court and be honest and come clean with this God because God knows broken people. Perhaps God wants to know if we understand we're broken. Micah offers this assurance, chapter 7, verse 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. Do the people say something then? Amen. It is possible to stand before this God in this kind of a divine court, standing broken before God with a list of offenses and all the wrongdoing, it now slips into the background of this conversation in Micah chapter 6. If you remember back to the courtroom scene, the question that people brought was, well then what would the Lord require of me? What, would, what is it you would like me to do? As, as if they don't know. And as soon as the answer comes out, it is as if, but you should have known over a hundred years of the prophetic voice all saying something similar, but hundreds of years before that, how could you ask, show me what to do? Is all the undercurrent underneath the text. Verse 8, he has showed you, O man, O nation of Israel, all of you, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It is so simple, some say it's not enough. You notice how two of these, act justly, love mercy, have to do with how we treat one another. Only one has to do specifically with how we interact with God, walk humbly, which Eugene Peterson says, don't take yourself so seriously, take God seriously. That is to walk humbly. This is what God wants, not as a payment for all of the offenses, but perhaps as a way of preventing these offenses. If you remember the list of allegations, then by now you've realized all of those offenses and allegations could have been prevented had people been acting justly, dispensing mercy to one another, and walking humbly with God. 
It is our trained instinct when we open the Bible and look at prophetic literature. It's a trained instinct to look for the bad guys, to, to label them, to identify them, to make sure we know who are the powers that we need to watch out for. It's our trained instinct to go through prophetic material and harvest it for data that we can use to protect ourselves. What do you see in the prophet Micah, also in prophetic material, is an invitation to hold up a mirror. In chapter 6, Micah says, hold up a mirror. This is personal. It's not just out there. It's in here. These are not writings for other nations and other powers. This is about you and God. This is about me and God. Prophecy is personal. What we're talking about right now will be very important when we get to Revelation in a few weeks. So I ask you to store that away. Prophecy is personal. Five years since 9-11. Five-year anniversary on Monday. We thought our world was fairly unpredictable and violent five years ago. We thought we were living in end times Five years ago, didn't we? Five years later, our world is more uncertain and more violent, more unpredictable. Around the country this weekend, people will gather. Around the world, people will gather, and they'll remember those who lost their lives on September 11, 2001. It is interesting that an undercurrent, however, of this conversation will be, what's happening to our bleak world? Are we really going to be safe? Will we really survive? It is the undercurrent of the conversations this weekend as memorial events take place. It's an interesting time to be a Christian. It's an interesting time to be a Christian because how ironic that on the five-year anniversary of 9-11, it's also the 100th year anniversary on September 11, 100 years ago, 1906. Mahatma Gandhi protested his very first act of public protest. In an act of nonviolence, he protested racial discrimination. Isn't that an interesting juxtaposition? Probably the most violent activity we've, the most violent action we've witnessed in our lifetime, for certain myself, right up against this man committed to nonviolence. What an interesting time to be alive. What an incredible time to be in the world. What a time to listen to the words of Micah. Do justly. Dispense mercy. Walk humbly. Gandhi said the difference between what we do and what we're capable of doing could solve all the problems in the world. Do justly. Dispense mercy. Walk humbly. What an interesting time to be a Christian listening to the prophetic voice of Scripture. More than sitting in front of a judge, more than a police officer stopping me on the street, more than being called to the principal's office, I don't like going to the dentist. My apologies to the dentists in the room. I've just never liked it. Terrifies me. It's its own judgment seat. 
and my father was my dentist. This is my dental file. About 30 years of dental history in this dental file here. And, and I know about mouths, and I know what dentists do with mouths. I know how they pass judgment on mouths on the street. They can diagnose from the sidewalk, as I've told you before. And, and I know when they see a problem, that means they're going to have to dispense some judgment. And I also know that I have a messed up mouth. From the time I was a little girl, my father said, your mouth's too small, you're crowded on the bottom, overbite, crossbite, clip, clip tongue, which you have to, a tongue thrusting, you have to clip the tongue two times. Headgear, braces, retainer, more braces, retainer, is a messed up mouth. There's a lot of judgment dispensed on this mouth, represented right here. I hate the dentist. And my father was my dentist. Now, my father gave the best shots his side of the river. I wish I could say the Mississippi River, the Columbia River. You couldn't feel my father's shots. You didn't even know what was happening to you when he put the needle in your mouth, a little anesthetic to deaden it. You didn't even know when the needle slipped in your mouth. It was just, it really was pain-free dentistry. Why am I afraid to go to the dentist? What is the problem? I only had two cap, my first cavity, I was age 16. What is the problem? Every time you go to the dentist, the report is okay. I would handle the dentist by sitting in the chair and taking these fingernails onto this arm. And you can still see the marks from first service. You just, it's displacement work. You all have done things like this. You just dig your fingernails into your arm. And if you dig them in hard enough and a little harder, you really can't tell what's happening in your mouth or in your head or in your toes or anywhere else in your body because this hurts so blank much. You just dig those fingernails in and I would start before he'd even get in the room and my hand will go dead and I just keep, and it does, it's violent. And I'm not sure why I thought this was better, but it worked for me. And my father would come in the room and he'd see my fingernails just dug into my skin. And he would sit down and look at me and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Take my hand. Pull my hand down. What are you afraid of? Might hurt. It's not going to hurt. Have I hurt you before? No. You're okay. Relax. It's not a judgment seat like that. If you knew, standing broken before God, inciting your offenses was not going to be painful. Would it free you up at all to do justice, justice, to dispense mercy, to walk humbly? What the prophet Micah is 